Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 51. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow, and in case you're feeling down in the dumps because nobody loves you, we've got some Drabble news for you this week that will surely get your mind off things. This was sent to us by Drabblecast contributor Ann Sauer, and I gotta warn you, it's <laughs> it's pretty gross. It's fascinating, but whew, don't say I didn't warn you. In fact, this is an official warning. If you're eating right now, or you're a vegetarian, or you just have a weak gag reflex, do yourself a favor and skip forward on your iPod to 9 minutes and 28 seconds. Trust me on this one. Uncle Norm just wants what's best for you. Okay, enough build-up. It's time for Drabble News. NewYorkTimes.com in Austin, Minnesota. Doctors at Austin Medical Center were confronted with a strange disease. Three patients had come in with the same highly unusual set of symptoms, fatigue, pain, weakness, and numbness and tingling in the legs and feet, don't you know? The patients had something else in common, too. All worked at the Quality Pork Processors, a local meatpacking plant. At the plant, nurses in the medical department had also begun to notice the same ominous pattern. The three workers had complained to them of heavy legs, and the nurses had urged them to see doctors. The nurses knew of a fourth case, too, and they feared that more workers would get sick, that a serious disease might be spreading through the plant. Oh, we put our heads together and said something's out of sorts, you bitcha, said Carol Bauer, the department head. Austin's biggest employer is Hormel Foods, maker of spam, bacon, and other processed meats. Side note, next time you're in Austin, be sure to stop by the infamous Spam Museum. Quality pork processors, which backs into the Hormel property, kills and butchers 19,000 hogs a day and sends most of them to Hormel. The complex emits clouds of steams and a distinctive scent that is easy to find from just about anywhere in town. Quality Pork is the second biggest employer, with 13,000 employees. Most work eight-hour shifts along a conveyor belt, a disassembly line, basically carving up a specific part of each carcass. Pay for these line jobs starts at about 11 to 12 bucks an hour. The work is grueling, but the plant is exceptionally clean, and the benefits are good said Richard Morgan, president of a local union. However, a man whom doctors call the index case, the first patient they knew about, got sick in December 2006 and was hospitalized at the Mayo Clinic for about two weeks. His job at Quality Pork was to extract the brains from swine heads. He was quite ill and severely affected neurologically, with significant weakness in his legs and loss of function in the lower part of his body said Dr. Daniel Lachance, a neurologist at Mayo. Tests showed that the man's spinal cord was markedly inflamed. The cause seemed to be an autoimmune reaction. His immune system was mistakenly attacking his own nerves as if they were a foreign body or a germ. Doctors could not figure out why it was happening, but the standard treatment for inflammation, a steroid drug, seemed to help. Neurological illnesses sometimes defy understanding, Dr. Lachance said, and this seemed to be one of them. At the time, it did not occur to anyone that the problem might be related to the patient's occupation. By spring, he went back to his job, but within weeks he became ill again. 
Once more, he recovered after a few months and returned to work, only to get sick all over again. By then, November 2007, other cases had begun to turn up. Ultimately, there were 12, six men and six women, ranging in age from 21 to 51. Doctors and the plant owner, realizing they had an outbreak on their hands, had already called in the Minnesota Department of Health, which, in turn, sought help from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Though the outbreak seemed small, the investigation took on urgency because the disease was serious and health officials worried that it might indicate a new risk to other workers in meatpacking. A survey of the workers confirmed what the plant's nurses had suspected. Those who got sick were employed at or near the head table, where workers cut the meat off severed hog heads. On November 28th, Dr. Ruth Linfield, the state epidemiologist, toured the plant. She and the owner, Kelly Wadding, paid special attention to the head table. Dr. Linfield became transfixed by one particular procedure called blowing brains. Again, that was 9 minutes and 28 seconds. As each head reached the end of the table, a worker would insert a metal hose into the foreman magnum, the opening that the spinal cord passes through. High-pressure blasts of compressed air then turned the brain into a slurry that squirted out through the same hole in the skull, often spraying brain tissue around and splattering the hose operator in the process. The brains were pooled, poured into 10-pound containers, and shipped to be sold as food, mostly in China and Korea, where cooks stir-fry them, but also in some parts of the American South, where people like them scrambled up with eggs. Remember to vote for Huckabee! The person blowing brains was separated from the other workers by a plexiglass shield that had enough space under it to allow the heads to ride through on a conveyor belt. There was also enough space for brain tissue to splatter nearby employees. You could see aerosolization of brain tissue, Dr. Linfield said. The workers wore hard hats, gloves, lab coats, and safety glasses, but many had bare arms, and none had masks or face shields to prevent swallowing or inhaling the mist of brain tissue. At first, health officials thought perhaps the pigs had some new infection that was being transmitted to people by the brain tissue. Sometimes infections can ignite an immune response in humans that flares out of control, like the conditions in the workers. But so far, scores of tests for viruses, bacteria, and parasites have found no signs of infection. As a result, Dr. Linfield said the investigators had begun leaning towards a seemingly bizarre theory, that exposure to the hog brain itself might have touched off an intense reaction by the immune system, something akin to a giant, out-of-control allergic reaction. The aerosolized brain matter might have been inhaled or swallowed or might have entered through the eyes. Clearly, all of the answers aren't in yet, doctors say, but it makes biologic sense that what we have here is an inhalation of brain material from these pigs that is eliciting an immunologic reaction. What may be happening is immune mimicry meaning that the immune system makes antibodies to fight a foreign substance, something in the hog brains, but the antibodies also attack the person's nerve tissue because it's so similar to some molecules in hog brains. Anatomically, pigs are a lot like people, but it's not clear yet how close a biochemical match there is between pig brains and human nervous tissue. Susan Cruz, who lives in Austin, was stunned by news reports about the outbreak in early December. Miss Cruz, 37, 
worked at Quality Pork for 15 years, but for the past year, she's been too sick to work. She had no idea that anyone else from the plant was ill, nor did she know that her illness might be related to her job. Her most recent job was backing heads, which means scraping meat from between the vertebrae. Three people per shift did that task, and together would process 9,500 heads in eight or nine hours. Miss Cruz stood next to the person who used compressed air to blow out the brains. She was often splattered, especially when trainees were learning to operate the air hose. I always had brains on my arms, she said. Most of the other workers are recovering, and some have returned to their jobs. But others, including the index case, are still unable to work. So far, there have been no new cases. I expect it will take several more months to get a true sense of the course of this illness, Dr. Lachance said. I think we'll learn a lot, but it may take us a while. It's a great detective story. That it is. And it's also one more reason to never eat spam. Like you needed one more reason. Disassembly lines, head tables, aerosolized brain matter, scrambled eggs. Happy Valentine's Day from the Drabblecast. Up, oh, 928. Welcome back, pansies. We've got a story for you today that will blow your mind. <laughs> but in a good way. It's called Crimson by Rob Haynes. Rob is an Englishman living on the beach in Wales. He's a graduate of marine biology who's been writing short stories for the past year, which he does when he's not working on cancer research for his day job. So without further ado, Crimson by Rob Haynes. The waves slither onto the beach, crimson like blood. I can smell the poison in the water, the chemical tang that rides the scent of brine, yet still I kneel on the soft white sands and cup my hands. The ocean withdraws. It leaves me wanting. Trails of ochre trickle seaward. They are not enough. I wait for the next wave, wishing deep in my heart that it will swell up and crash down upon my head and drown my sorrows. Instead, I await the long path to oblivion. The waves rush forward again and I dash my hands into the water. I come up with a handful of wet sand. It runs through my fingers, a soft tingling inches its way across my skin. This is the way my father passed, and my brother. They chose the long path. The red tide left them on the shore, their lips and fingertips blue, their hearts stilled by the toxins that have banished living memory of the blue-green ocean. What wonders my kin saw as they passed, none living will ever know. Only those willing to taste the waters see as they did. Only those willing to taste the waters die with their eyes open. But my hands are full of sand. My fingers twinge as the toxin seeps through the skin, and even the ochre sands fall from my grasp. I eye the next wave with interest. It gathers speed. Perhaps this will be the one which carries its deadly cargo 
into my grasp. Footfalls upon sand thrum behind me. The wave has me transfixed, and I do not turn. I reach down towards the retreating water, even as Anya's familiar presence approaches. Seth, please, she says. Her voice wavers. Come away, come back with me. No, I won't. But I can't say such things, not to my beloved sister. How can I tell her that I am taking the long path without implying that existence alone with her is unbearable? It isn't, but it isn't enough. So I say nothing. The wave swells. I can't lose you too, she says. But she will. Already my fingers have gone numb. The toxin is strong. Soon it will take the rest of the life on this island of ours, by starvation, if nothing else. The shallow seas are empty of fish. They were the first to die, washing up on the shore in droves. We were wise enough not to feast on this apparent bounty, but not wise enough to find a solution that didn't end in the long path. Her shaking hand descends on my shoulder. Please she says. Don't leave me all alone. It's all about her, you see. She fears solitude more than she fears the slow death of all that surrounds her. The long path takes time, but it will be nothing more than a moment compared to the drawn-out suffering of living with the despair that this red tide brings. The wave lunges forward and Anya skitters backwards out of its reach. The poison laps at my bare knees. My skin is on fire, but it is a fire of purification, a fire of rebirth. My hands are heavy, yet still I cup them and lower them into the ebbing flow. Why? she demands. Tell me! I wish to die with my eyes open, I say. I lift my hands and tilt my head back. She strikes my wrist. The poisoned water sprays from my hands across my face, across the beach. It looks like she's drawn blood. Perhaps she has. My lips are wet. Whether with poison or my own fearful sweat, I do not know. I turn to look at her. Her eyes burn. Her lips are pursed in a furious expression I remember from our childhood. Red dots spatter her shorts and her bare legs. I laugh, struck for a moment by the image of the two of us. She raises her hand to strike me again, but she hesitates. Her eyes burn fiercer. I don't understand, she says. Why throw it all away? Everything we've worked to build. Everything Mother left us. But there's no hope, I say. And it's true. When there's no hope, there's only despair. Then find hope. Please, Seth, think about this. I have thought about it, long and hard, I say. Either I will die here with the ocean's tide at my lips, or when the tide strips the life from our home, I will die of starvation. 
I will watch you die of the same. If you leave, I will die of loneliness. I shake my head, but she kneels and grasps my shoulders with both hands. If you taste the waters, so do I, she says. We will take the long path together. She has always known my heart. She knows that this is the one thing I could not stand. Is that not the reason for my cowardice? Is that not the reason that I seek the long path? To save my eyes from seeing the one thing I could not stand. The suffering of my sister. I lick my lips as I gaze into her eyes, judging her determination. My tongue burns. My limbs feel distant. I turn away from her, back towards the ocean. She kneels at my side, and her hands reach out for the crimson tide. She won't do it. She won't follow through. She's just trying to bluff me, to pull me back into her world, away from the long path. The wave rushes in. We reach down as one. I wince as the poison coats her fingers, but we each draw a palmful of death. She raises her hands to her lips and hesitates to glance at me. She is bluffing, bluffing, bluffing. My mouth is ablaze, my brain stinging, my thoughts astray. I struggle to raise my hand to my mouth. I follow my fathers and brothers upon the long path. Anya whispers. She tilts her head back. The water trickles from her hand. Crimson splashes across her nose, her eyes into her mouth, down her chin. She coughs and drops her hand. I freeze. Her back arches with a crack, and she topples sideways onto the sand. Her eyes are wide, delirious. She is on her way. I must follow. But my hand disobeys. My brain is on fire, and the beach undulates before me. The foam at my sister's mouth is like the treetops at sunset. But I have not tasted the waters. I cannot take the long path. I cannot pass on beside her. I force my hand to my mouth, but already it is empty. I lick the palm, but there is nothing but damp sand. I fall back against the beach as the ocean retreats. I am vaguely aware of Anya's fevered thrashings beside me, but that is not my path. She is gone, and I must remain, taunted by crimson. that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. Water, water everywhere. I wonder how many siblings would actually behave that nicely if stuck on an apocalyptic island of death without their parent supervision. Just wondering. Anyway, feedback from episode 44, The Ark of Chronos by Andon Sharp. Well, listener feedback for this story wasn't great, mostly because people seemed to figure out the end pretty early on. Philippa said, Bah! I hate predictable twists. Time travel stories are hard to pull off, though, I suppose. Steering clear of explaining paradoxes and plot holes seems to help, though, in my experience. 
Andrea compared it to a recent and similar escape pod story, The Color of a Brontosaurus by Paul E. Martens, but commented that she liked the Ark of Hronos better. Several others replied that they liked the color of the Brontosaurus better. Either way, neat coincidence. Join our forums and let us know what you think. If you're not tired of elections and voting at this point, drop by and cast your vote on the People's Choice Drabblecast Awards. There are four great stories contending and you should show your support. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can share it with all your friends, but you can't change any of it and you can't sell it. If you like what we do, help us keep doing it by donating via our PayPal link on the website. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and myself, Norm Sherman, reminding you that a mind is a terrible thing to inhale. So things didn't go well.